I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 39, we read The Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington, published in 1996. Samuel P. Huntington was born in 1927 in New York City. His mother was a short story writer, and his father published hotel trade journals. He graduated with distinction from Yale University at age 18, served in the U.S. Army, earned a master's degree from the University of Chicago, and completed his Ph.D. at Harvard University, where he began teaching at age 23. He spent more than 50 years at Harvard University, where he taught another conservative minds thinker, Francis Fukuyama. Huntington served as director of Harvard's Center for International Affairs. During the presidency of Jimmy Carter, Huntington was the White House coordinator of security planning for the National Security Council. Huntington met his wife, Nancy, when they were working together on a speech for 1956 presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson. How about that? They had two sons. Huntington died in 2008 at the age of 81. All right, so Huntington tells us that the central theme of this book is that culture and cultural identities are shaping the patterns of cohesion, disintegration, and conflict in the post-Cold War world. Remember, this was published in 1996, so he's looking at the world post-Cold War and trying to project, you know, what's the world going to look like. He says the most important distinctions among peoples are not ideological, political, or economic. Instead, they're cultural People define themselves in terms of ancestry, language, religion, history, values, customs, and institutions. They identify with with their cultural groups. That's their tribe, ethnic group, religious community, nations, and at the very broadest level, he's going to introduce this idea of civilizations. So people, he says people use politics not just to advance their interests, but also to define their identity. I mean, does that have application for today or what? Mm Mm-hmm. So he says, we know who we are only when we know who we are not, and often only when we know whom we are against. Let's read that one more time, because this, I think, has great application to our domestic politics in America, it's, uh, just as much as the international politics he's talking about here. People know who they are only when they know who they are not, and often only when we know whom we are against. That sound about right? What do you think, Kyle? Definitely. I mean, we you hear people talk about tribalism in politics now. I mean, it's nothing new, you know, with the, even within our, our own country. But it is interesting. He's writing in a moment where the world had been divided by ideology more than anything else for 50 years. Even longer, if you, because it was World War II was also an ideological struggle for the most part. You know, he, they were coming out of an era in 96 when he wrote this that people said, well, you know, ideology is the thing that divides the world. That's, you know, we fought the communists just like we had fought the fascists before them. Now we've triumphed. And then you get the, the end of history view, like we discussed in those couple episodes uh, about the Fukuyama book. So, oh, well, you've got the triumph of Western liberal democracy, obviously best system. Everybody likes it. The end. And, uh, 
Huntington is you know, he's looking and saying everything else in human history has mostly not been ideological. It's mostly been cultural, civilizational. Mm-hmm. The clashes between people have not been about what they think the best system of government is. I mean, that, there's some of that even you know since the French Revolution, but it's not. The main reason people were fighting France was because it was France, not because it was revolutionary. You know, it was the same mm-hmm. thing that uh, under Louis the Fourteenth they were fighting France because it was France, because it was expansive. In the historical long view, what he's saying makes sense, but it, I mean, I think I can imagine when this came out that it was sort of uh, must have sounded you know pessimistic and backward looking to people because it's we thought we were all past tribalism. You know, people who call stuff tribalists always they don't mean it in a nice way. You know, it's always like, it's yeah. like populist. It's taken on this, it's a neutral term that's used negatively. Yeah, I mean, in 1996, it was definitely a time of optimism. Iron Curtain falls and the era of of world peace and and uh, everyone's going to wear a Nike shirt and <laughs> McDonald's and everything. But I think that he, he's going to describe these dynamics in terms of uh, international relations, um, one civilization versus another. But like I say, I think that this just has pure application. For example, do you think Trump should be impeached? Is not really a question of policy. It's not really a question of constitutional law. It really is a question of, are we going to let them beat us or not? You yeah. Know, it's, it's an us versus them proposition. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to vote next year who are not voting for either candidate. You know, they're voting against the other side. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, and it, in, a, in a country like ours where we are getting you know, we have such freedom of movement that people are sort of self-segregating and wanting to live next to people that are like them. I mean, mm-hmm. not that you and I do, but a lot of other people do, you know, they, you know, and it's, it, it, it makes it like two sub civilizations within the country grappling with each other and understanding each other less. One of the things he's, he mentions here is um, trade. People talk about, you know, with the China issue that, you know, in, in the 20 years ago, we thought we trade with them. We'll get to know each other better. They'll become more like us, you know, because look, we got money. We, we, we've we traded a lot and look how, you know, look how civilized we are. You know, we are, we are Western democracies, the, the best civilization in the world. So that, you know, we'll trade with them and it'll be the same thing. But Huntington notes that trading doesn't, I'm skipping ahead to chapter nine here. Uh, he said, economic exchange brings people into contact. It does not bring them into agreement. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I think you could, I definitely see that in China, like, both sides may have had financial gains from trade, but it doesn't make us more like each other. Even if yeah, we're watching right. the same movies and wearing those same Nike shirts, you know, it doesn't doesn't change what's uh, underlying all of our assumptions about life and culture. Just mm-hmm. the fact that you know we're buying goods from each other, and maybe that's that's true of increasingly separate tribe political tribes within America. You know, we obviously we're in the same country where. You know, we, there's more internal trade than external trade where, you know, everything you buy from America is from somebody from somewhere else and in, in the country. And, you know, unless you're really politically active, you're not looking into the politics of who makes every single thing you buy. And yet it doesn't make, bring us any closer together. It just gives us, it it gives us a living, you know, I mean, all that, all that, all that trade, you know, it's, it's people's jobs and it keeps, keeps going, but it doesn't make one of us into the other. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's kind of the civilizational clash that Huntington's talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's uh, let's get our 
his definition of civilizations, well, he tells us that a civilization is the broadest cultural entity. So when we're talking about culture is what shapes identities, civilization is the broadest. It says villages, regions, ethnic groups, nationalities, religious groups all have distinctive cultures at different levels. He gives the example, the culture of a village in Southern Italy may have a different form than that of a village in Northern Italy, but both will share a common Italian culture that distinguishes them from the Germans, for example. So civilization is defined by language, you know, history, religion, customs, and institutions, as well as sort of subjective factors like the sub- subjective identification of the people. So there's no clear-cut boundaries and no precise beginning or end. He's, he'll, he'll label these the major civilizations of today. Western civilization, which is ours. Cynic, meaning Chinese, Chinese civilization. Japanese, Hindu, Islamic, Latin American. And Orthodox, Orthodox meaning Russian or like Eastern European. He says that global politics is, you know, again, he's writing at the, the dawn of the post-Cold War age. He says global politics is being reconfigured along cultural lines. Peoples and countries with similar cultures are coming together. What counts for people are blood and belief and family. People rally to those with similar ancestry, religion, language, values, institutions, and distance themselves from those with different ones. And this really made me think about that that Bismarck quote, and it's not clear whether he actually said this or not, but in 1898, Bismarck says the greatest fact in modern political history is the inherent and permanent fact that North Americans speak English, mm-hmm. which he said in 1898, but how prescient is that? Because the U.S. actually had more uh, citizens with German ancestry, you know, than certainly than French, but the U.S. gets involved in the war because we speak English, basically. Yeah, that's what he's arguing. And then World War II, the same thing. It's true that the, I mean the things that tie us together. And you would think, you know, the bill on that, you think that uh, having just fought a war for independence against Britain, we would be you know, lifelong enemies. But it, it didn't happen. You know, right away we started to get closer. And you know, it, it, it maybe it's, it's because we recognize each other as. Not the same, but very close, and clearly part of the same civilization as mm-hmm. as uh, Huntington defines it. Yeah, so Western civilization would be obviously North America, all the, the English speaking countries, as well as sort of Western Europe, right? So France, Germany, more or less the EU, and uh, then Australia, and you know, I mean, it's I guess it stands to reason, but we have probably our closest relationships with the other English speaking countries with Canada, mm-hmm. with Great Britain, you know, with Australia. So very close ties and it, and it stands to reason. And we don't have that same close ties with, you know, you can't even name an African country where we have something like that. No. Because there's not a history there or a, a common language or a common, common, I guess in some ways a common belief system if they have colonial like Christianity or whatever. But um, so he's a, he, he describes some dynamics of identity. The increased salience of cultural identity results from economic modernization at the individual level where dislocation and alienation create the need for more meaningful identities. Now, that that's a lot of words, but he's basically like putting his finger on something that we've discussed many times, which is the modern um, economic system really kind of atomizes people a little bit. So people are have even more reason to stick their heads up, try to look around like, you know, who, who are my, who are my people? Who are my us? Mm. And now that we have social media, 
He says, improvements in transportation and communication have produced more frequent and intense interactions with people from different civilizations. And that's across national lines, but even internally, even uh, domestically, like social media has just made it so easy to find, you know, people who are just like you and, and to create your own echo chamber together. And as we've talked about many times, like politics has become the new meaning, you know, particularly in light of, uh, you know, religion waning, like people want meaning in their lives and, and they're trying to find it through politics. And, and this is people kind of banding together and finding each other through social media. And, and then it becomes, you know, even more easy to, to, to translate into that, uh, you know, us versus them. Mode. Yeah. It's the same way that, um, that Hayek talked about the ideologies of his day being the new attractors of, uh, people who were becoming, uh, you know, anxious and individuated on the counter-modern society. So now we, you know, people were becoming communists or fascists because it filled that void. That's, you know, when somebody mm-hmm. says to you, what are you? Well, I'm a communist or I'm a, I'm a liberal or I'm a, I'm a fascist, you know? And now the, the triumph of, of liberalism kind of puts an end to that. Not that there aren't still communists. I mean, there's the biggest country in the world is nominally communist, although what they do is a little different than what Marx would have done, but it's, it's still out there, but you know, when you get that end of history vibe from, you know, the end of the cold war and here Huntington is saying, yeah, the, there's still, there's still cultural, there's still something of, of people are looking for something and looking for that overarching, where do I belong? And you know, the, the triumph of liberal democracy didn't rebuild traditional society. And as some of our authors have said, they've it actually contributed even more to its destruction. So what do you have? Well, you've still got, mm-hmm. you still have a culture, you know, you still have a, a people, a nation or a, a sort of a super nation, these broad seven or eight groups, people are going to go for something. If you've knocked down all the struts that were holding up what you, what they used to go for, you know, their village, their church, their interest group, political, you know, non-political, local intermediary group. Uh, yeah. What are you going to go for? You're going to go for the thing you're steeped in, you know, and we have been for millennia is our culture. Mm-hmm. I think a point he made about the West and its triumph is that we, the West, Western civilization triumphed in the 19th and 20th centuries. We, 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 we think it triumphed because it's the best, you know, everybody likes it. It's going to displace the other cultures at the end. But what it really did is, you know, we, Western countries, especially European countries, conquered the world. So we, you know, through military might, through technological might, Western society was everywhere. And then I think Westerners took the wrong lesson from that. Is to say, well, we conquered because our, our civilization is superior. It's like, no, we had the best guns. It's not the same thing. So now that we don't necessarily have the best guns, you know, China has nuclear missiles too and all that kind of technology and other countries, you know, we're not actively occupying the globe in the way that Britain and France and and, Germany did in those days. Um, Now we're seeing that the culture alone isn't enough to dominate the world and other cultures are pushing back against it. For sure. And I think it's worth noting that that this is actually a conservative thought to say that that there is an American culture that there that it is it mm-hmm. does differ from you know Islamic culture or whatever. 
and that there's, you know, even any idea of good, better, best is something that the, certainly the left, he says, the leftist academy has attacked the identification of the, of the United States with Western civilization, has denied the existence of a common American culture, promoted racial, ethnic, and other subnational cultural identities and groupings. I mean, mm-hmm. he says that uh, identity can only be defined in relation to an other, a different person, a different tribe, a different race. And I, to me, that is self-evident, really. But folks on the left would absolutely reject that and say, no, there's, there's, you don't have to define yourself as another, you know, in, in different uh, or separate from. And so this, some of this stuff that he's, that we were discussing here, it seems basic and straightforward, but, but it certainly is not uh, universally agreed upon. Plenty on the left would say, no, definitely not. There's, there there is no human tendency to separate us versus them. That's all socially constructed. We only do that because people teach us to do that. Yeah. And it it gives this paradox in leftist thinking too, is that you have the, them saying exactly that, you know, this is all just, you know, we're all just people under the skin. It's nothing is different. You know, you speak a different language, but that's just because it's where you grew up. But then they want to say that our American culture should not be imperialistic, like a cultural imperialism, you know, and suppressing other cultures. And you say, well, what is the other culture then? You know, what are, what are the differences between these cultures? And it brings you back to this beginning point. It's like either we are this unseemly colossus that's, you know, overwhelming native cultures around the world. Okay. Well, if that's true, then there's a difference between us and them. Yeah. You know, if, if we're all the same, then it doesn't really matter if it's our movies and our books and our music that's taking over the world because it's all just human stuff. Right. But the fact that people resist American cultural imperialism or Western cultural imperialism, and even the, yeah, the leftist establishment within our Western countries resist it. It's saying that it's different. You know, it's, it's like they're, in a backward way, conceding the point that there is something different between us and Chinese culture or Japanese culture. And they don't want to admit that though. So it, it's, it's a weird circular thing. And here Huntington's cutting through that and saying, yeah, they're, they're different. Cultures are different. <laughs> and, you know, everybody thinks his own is the best, but there's really no, you know, best for you, best for me. It's, it's a, it's not a, it's not a thing you can figure out with an equation or a, or a social experiment. It's just different. Yeah. I mean, your affinity to Western culture is of a function of the fact that we were born in America. Yes. Good. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, humans just tend to move in the direction of like my team versus your team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just going to yeah. happen. And, and I do think our ideas are the best, but I'm, I mean, I think here Huntington's saying, yeah, other countries are going to say other cult- cultures are going to say that their ideas are the best. And we, we can't disprove that, you know, and for them, they believe it as much as, as I believe that our, our Western ideas are the best. I mean, I, I think liberal democracy is great. I think the way our society's grown up is the best thing for most people, but mm-hmm. it's, it's important to look at it from the other, from the other guy's shoes too. For sure. So he tells us the dominant division is between the West and the rest with the most intense conflicts occurring between Muslim and Asian societies on the one hand and the West on the other. And I think when he's talking about Asian societies, he, he kind of bunches most of East Asia other than Japan and Southeast Asia together. I'm not sure that, you know, Vietnam is, is as enamored with China as, as, mm. um, but, uh, 
but certainly they, they share a lot of common cultural heritage. That's for sure. But anyway, so between Muslim societies and the West, between, you know, China and Asian societies in the West, the dangerous clashes of the future, he says, this is great. Remember he wrote this in 1996, the dangerous clashes of the future are likely to arise from the interaction of Western arrogance, Islamic intolerance, and Chinese assertiveness. <laughs> Let's back that up. Let's unpack that a little bit. Western, uh, you know, Islamic intolerance. Uh, how about 9-11? Western arrogance. How about Iraq? You know, Chinese assertiveness. How about this uh, trade war that Trump <laughs> versus Trump right now? I mean, it's amazing. He, mm-hmm. he nailed it. Absolutely nailed it, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, we've talked about like fault lines and wars, and, and you know, it's, it's the clash of cultures that's coming. He's writing in a time when there was very limited actual warfare between any of these groups. You know, I mean, there was the Gulf War, which he talks about, which was really it started out as a war between two Muslim Arab countries. You know, mm. that, that the West got on the side of one of them, and some of the other Arabs were also on our side, like Saudi Arabia. So, it, I, he calls that a fault war, but it's not really not in the same way that the Iraq War was later on, you know, and the Afghan, the Afghan war also, you know, so it's, he did see that stuff coming and, and it's, it, it shows the prescience of the book. Yeah. And also just the West versus non-West thing is, is interesting because the, the Chinese culture group has nothing more in common with Islam than we do. Probably less, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Islam and, and, and the uh, and the West have been interacting for a long time, and they have their roots in the common, you know, uh, they're both religions out of the Holy Land that came claim to come from the same God and everything. So you know, we have that we have that in common. Not that it's made us great friends or anything, but at least it's a background that has more in common with each other than either of us does with China. And yet, the interests of those groups make it such that the Chinese and various Muslim states are going to align against us even though they don't particularly like each other. Like you, you have, yeah, you have yeah. China putting a million Muslims in concentration camps in, in Western China <laughs> and you don't, and Saudi Arabia doesn't say a thing, you know, and yeah, yeah. Yemen and Qatar and, and Egypt don't say a thing because they've got bigger fish to fry, which is their conflict with the West. And that that's yeah, interesting. Cause, yeah. I mean, if we had one, one hundredth of the number of Muslims in such a situation, it would be, you know, I mean, you'd have a hundred bin Ladens rising up and, and bombing us yeah. and everything. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, that would be a pretty atrocious thing for us to do. So you would understand their, their outrage. But when China does it, and it's not like it's a big secret anymore, it's pretty much out there. Even mainstream news is talking about it. You get nothing. And I think that's, that's a great point. I, I was, when I was reading this, I mean, uh, Huntington says it's West versus not West is the coming thing. And that is it. They're both they're both so fixated on their struggle against us because they're, they're trying to rise against us since we were the, the dominant culture for hundreds of years. Yeah. 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 I mean, China and Iran, you know, obviously like making side deals to yeah. stick it. To and us. China's official policy is to be against all religion and, and, you know, Muslim a country like Iran is explicitly a religious nation, a theocracy. So, you know, why should the thought of them being allies in any way is it, you know, insane if you look at it through the lens of ideology, but through this cultural description, the civilizational conflict that Huntington's talking about here, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. called that 20 years ago. Yeah, so he talks a little bit more about uh, when he talked, uh, we just read his quote about Western arrogance. He says, the collapse of communism reinforced in the West the view 
that its ideology of democratic liberalism had triumphed globally and hence was universally valid. I mean, I think that's obviously true. I mean, when, when we were in high school and everything, it was just pretty clear that the, the West had triumphed. Our ideas are the best. Mm-hmm. And now it's just a matter of spreading those ideas. And it, uh, it, it bled into, you know, the Bush administration, obviously, like we're here to spread democracy around the world. Uh, we found out that that just doesn't work. The West, and especially the U.S., he says, believe that the non-Western peoples should commit themselves to the Western values of democracy, free markets, limited government, human rights, individualism, and the rule of law. Which to me, just like, of course, yeah, you know, who wouldn't? You I mean, know, it's like it's I us. have this, yeah, I have this ice cream. Who who wouldn't want to eat it? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you know, and to, I don't want to criticize Bush too much, but he's you know came to the same conclusion. Like, let's bring freedom to people, but. He's, uh, here's Huntington again. The dominant attitudes in other civilizations range from widespread skepticism to intense opposition to these Western values. What is universalism in the West is imperialism to the rest. Now, he wrote this in 1996 when it was, I mean, that's stepping, you know, this is a guy who's not in lockstep with the rest of the view of the Western world, you know, the rest of the Western world is viewed like, Hey, you know, Russia is going to democratize the iron curtains coming down. Now it's just a matter of spreading democracy. And, and he's like, I don't think that's going to happen because these other civilizations viewed as imperialism. And that's basically what we found in the, the 20 years since 30 years since then. Yeah. I mean, if you, it, it seems self-evident today almost, but nobody wanted to hear that in 96. You know, I mean, this is Boris Yeltsin was staying at the White House. We were all going to be friends. You know, I mean, we was there was walls had come down. You know, things were being declassified. Everything. You know, both countries were cutting their militaries. It was it was going to be a great time, and China was the next one around the corner. We all thought. You know, that's yeah, yeah. Just like Russia, just like the USSR fell, you know, the PRC was going to fall, and those people were going to be free. It was going. Yeah, it was going to be all all roses. It was fun. And then, uh, yeah, he, here comes this guy, you know, the fly in the soup saying, uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, I can imagine the reception. <laughs> now, I mean, I didn't, I, I had heard of this book. I didn't read it until recently. I don't, um, but I, I, I've heard people talk about Huntington and I can imagine just the, you know, raining on the parade of, uh, universalism it was, uh, probably unpopular, but it turns out, pretty pretty accurate yeah and again you know why wouldn't people want to accept it you know you have this beautiful you know yummy bowl of ice cream why wouldn't somebody want to eat it well what huntington is telling us is that culture matters a lot and you know if you if you don't grow up with those institutions with that culture then you're you're not necessarily going to you know run to the front of the line and, and there's always going to be people who are going to want to undermine it and see advantage in and that's just not the way we do things, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And he, even where democracy did spread outside the West in the seventies, eighties and nineties, he talks about how it mostly spread in States that had a lot in common with the West. Yeah. Like he separates Latin America into a separate civilization, which I don't completely agree with. But, um, if it is a separate civilization, it's a lot like ours. You know, yeah, it has, yeah. it has the European heritage, it has the Christian heritage. So, you know, when dictators were falling in, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, you'd say, oh yeah, well, it, you know, it, it made, it made it look like 
you know, the dominoes were tumbling around the world and dictatorship was on the way out. Same with Franco in Spain and uh, Salazar in Portugal. It looks like, oh, you know, these, these guys in the 70s are realizing that their way's past. Liberal democracy is coming. But they're all civilizations that have this, a very similar background to us. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Has that, it's the kind of soil that democracy can grow in. And even South Korea is, of all the Asian countries, the most Christian. Their missionaries uh, were way more successful there than Japan, China. Yeah, I mean, there is point, there is yeah. growing Christian Christianity in China, but it's the country's so huge; it's still a drop in the bucket. <laughs> so South Korea got democratized, Taiwan, but it didn't uh, it didn't go from there in the way that I think. If you were looking at the, you know, it's like it's like one of those articles in the Economist where they have a, some data points and they draw the line off into you know 500 years from now. It's like, well, the line doesn't always go straight. And the, you know, the, the growth of democracy was a line that looked like it was going all the way up to 100% Yeah, the end. But uh, yeah, that cultural background really mattered. And uh, he, he, he makes some great points about that. So, and it's not just, we're, we're not just talking about uh, cultures, different cultures that are stuck in the mud, let's say. They actually think they're better. He says, Islam yeah. and China embody great cultural traditions, very different from... And in their eyes, infinitely superior to that of the West. So it's not even just that they're resisting out of recalcitrance. They're like, no, ours is better. Like we actually, this is how God wants, you know, women to be covered up. So in your culture, it's inferior because it's immoral, you know, it's decadent. Mm -hmm. And this is what this is, you know, this is the higher order of, you know, civilization. And so we have no interest in you know, radical individualism of the West or something. Like that. Yeah. And you, you hear the way here, Western liberals talk about non-Western societies is often the way like Western Christians would talk about animist and, and other like tribal societies in the old days. It's like, well, look, if they knew about what we're talking about, they'd be on board, you know, uh, like you imagine like a, a British missionary going off into Africa saying, look, well, these people haven't even heard the name of Jesus. Once they hear it, they're going to be on board like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And some yeah. were, but not all of them, you know, and it's the same, you know, it's, I think we look at a place like Afghanistan. It's like, look, if we educated them, uh, I mean, this is, what are we doing? Opening schools for girls over there, you know? So, oh, they'll all get educated and then they won't want to be that kind of Muslim anymore. They'll be the kind of Muslim that we can understand. And uh, it's not that they're, they're not dumb and they're not ignorant. I mean, some of these uh, Muslim Brotherhood dudes were doctors, lawyers. You know, they, they have Western style education. They just yeah, don't like yeah. it. You know, they, <laughs> they got to look at the West and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I mean, no country's perfect, but I like ours better, you know, and they, they, you know, they, they see, even we in the West admit we've got a lot of problems every country does and they see those problems and say i don't want to take that on for us i i, I think uh this these quranic values are the way to go mm-hmm. so it's it's we have the imperialist mindset the universalist mindset of saying you know oh if only they knew you know if it's and you get this you get this with domestic politics too it's you know they they wouldn't vote for trump if they had education it's like well a lot of educated people did vote for him and <laughs> you know it's taking a taking a few more classes down the community college isn't going to change your cultural values which shouldn't if you had if they if they meant anything to you they wouldn't be changed by you took intro to econ or whatever you know so i I think you get that same that same feel from the establishment you know in our political system well if only 
If only we could say the right form of words or the right form of education, everyone would see things our way. No, that's not that's that's not how this works. Yeah, and I mean that's a kind of an outgrowth of the argument that you know culture and mindset and the differences us versus them is completely socially constructed. Now, culture is of course, but but I mean the the innate tendency of humans to to divide into tribes and into peoples is just that's just inherent. Mm-hmm. He says uh, some Western leaders. Well, actually, he was he he said Clinton, and I changed this to some Western leaders, but. Bill Clinton, but we've heard this from plenty of other Western leaders, have argued that the West does not have problems with Islam, but only with violent Islamist extremists. Again, this was 1996. He says, 1,400 years of conflict between Islam and Christianity demonstrate otherwise. The reaffirmation of Islam means the repudiation of European and American influence upon local society, politics, and morals. He says, Muslims fear and resent Western power and the threat which this poses to their society and beliefs. They see Western culture as materialistic, corrupt, decadent, and immoral. So, in other words, he's arguing that uh, plenty of these Muslim societies, are they feel like they're under attack. You know, we think that we're bringing enlightenment to them. And mm-hmm. and you and I would probably say, yeah, we are. Yeah, but... <laughs> But that's not the way they see it. They see it as you are attacking our our way of life and our our uh, our religion and our society, and and what you're bringing with you is this materialism, this decadence, this immorality, and uh, we don't want it and we need to reject it. And so he says there's fear and resentment towards Western power. And he said this in 1996, and obviously he's been vindicated completely since then because this is, you know, these are the you know fault lines that we've dealt with. Um, in uh, all of the 2000s. Yeah, that, that, that line you quoted stood out to me too. And I think the question of whether the West has a problem with Islamist extremists or Islam itself turns on whether Western liberalism has other underlying ideas besides, you know, democracy and, uh, you know, constitution. And I think Clinton would say no. And I think a lot of, a lot of people would say no. Um, and that's, that's like the, uh, the Von Mises book, you know, is that liberalism isn't a, a scheme of life. It's, you know, it's, it's a way to organize governments. And then I think you get the, the contrasting argument is, you know, the, the, the people who are in those Islamic societies are like, no, your, your Western thing is not just guy with the most votes wins. It, there's a lot of other things going on there. Mm-hmm. A lot of the cultural underpinnings that support liberal democracy are things that are alien to other parts of the world. And I, don't, I think that's the question that Clinton and Bush also would be hung up on this. They're saying, you know, you can have this liberal stuff, these individual rights, you know, these um, democracy, republic ideas without having all of the stuff that came with it. And I think, I mean, Iraq's a mess this like right now, you know, I mean, they're they're in the streets over there. I'm not even sure why at this point. But yeah. the same, you know, it's it's uh, it's not it's not as easy to just graft part of one system onto the other and say, look, go this this is where this works for everybody. And I think it's because there are there is a, a Western culture, and that's something I think that when this book came out, a lot of people didn't want to admit that there is a Western culture and that it is attached to a lot of our. Our, a lot of our political institutions grow out of our Western culture. Yeah, yeah. 
And so uh, how do these civilizations come into contact? Well, really, right now, the, the most um, you know, salient factor is immigration. Hmm. He says, by the early 1990s, two-thirds of the migrants in Europe were Muslim. And European, he's, this is his argument, European concern with immigration is above all concern with Muslim immigration. Obviously, in the U.S., it's sort of Hispanic immigration. He says, the issue is not whether Europe will be Islamicized or the United States Hispanicized. Now, I'm sure plenty of people think that was kind of a racist remark, okay? Um, it is whether Europe and America will become cleft societies. And he defines cleft, but basically like encompassing two distinct and largely separate communities from two different civilizations, which in turn depends on the numbers of immigrants and to the extent to which they are assimilated into the Western cultures prevailing in Europe and America. I think this is much less of a problem in uh, in, in America, although obviously it's it's driven a lot of sentiment and, mm-hmm. you know, Trump is, has, um, has capitalized on that, that uh, there's different cultures. I mean, you'd make the argument the Latin American culture is pretty similar to to Western, and I, and I totally agree. But there is obviously differences in language differences, Spanish and English, and when it comes to American immigration. But I think in Europe, it's, it's you know, it's it's a difficulty for us that we face. And, and you know, it's and immigration is the, at the top of the list of people's most probably uh, controversial issues. But in Europe, it's much worse because they, they just really can't get these guys to assimilate. And and then he, he, Huntington's going to argue, he says, European societies generally do not want the immigrants to assimilate. <laughs> yeah, they're different over <laughs> and there. The, so it's kind of like, we don't want you guys to, you are not French, and we're not going to let you be French. And so that's part of it. And the other part is, Huntington says, Muslim immigrant, the degree to which Muslim immigrants and their children want to be assimilated is unclear. Like they, you know, may they may want, may not want to. Now here in America, I, that, I think that's, certainly a challenge that we'll always face but you know we have a ton of muslim neighbors and half of my friend kids friends are uh, muslim from a lot from pakistan from ethiopia from you know uh, north african countries and and you know with the parents a lot of times there's a language barrier and it's a little bit difficult but you know not always but with the kids I think the kids are totally assimilated. I mean, yeah. there's American and playing Fortnite is, you know, any of my boys or whatever, you know, so. Yeah, I think we have an easier time of it. Um, and even even with more disparate civilizations, too. I mean, if we even if we accept that the Chinese and, and Islamic civilizations are different in a way that Latin America isn't, those folks still assimilate to American life pretty easily, you know, especially, yeah, yeah. as you said, by the second generation people who were born here. Yeah, kids play together. You know, they go to the same schools. It's playing the same sports teams. It's, uh, yeah, it works itself out. And I think when this book, what I had heard about this book is also, like you said, you know, just talking about these people have this value, these people have this value. It sounds, it sounds a little like racist, but, and I think that was the vibe people got from it when it came out. But reading it, I, I have found, I, he's really calling for more Western humility. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's not, it's not, he's not saying Western society is the best. He's saying, we think it is, but we should accept other people and not impose these values as though they truly were universal. So I, I, I found it's a different, if you actually read it, which, you know, a lot of cultural criticism doesn't involve actually reading the book. Yeah. But if you do read it as, as we've done, I think you'll see it's not, it's more about us pulling back, 
you know, and not trying to dominate the world, which is something that used to be something the left would say. Yeah, um, yeah. But like a lot of conservative ideas, it's come around all the way back to the right again, they, you know, which, where it may have started in the sort of like on the Burkean right of every place has their own traditions and, and such. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you. A major theme is um, Western civilization, humility. But to be fair, you know, he, he talks about what uh, he calls fault line wars. He introduces this concept of fault line wars. He says wars between clans, tribes, ethnic groups have been prevalent in every era and every civilization because they're rooted in the identities of people. So fault line conflicts are conflicts between groups from different civilizations. And he does not mince words. He says the overwhelming majority of fault line conflicts have taken place between Muslim countries and the rest. Yeah. And he gives examples of Afghanistan, Bosnia, Croatia, Albania, Cyprus, Turkey, Chechnya, the Uyghurs in China, Kashmir, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, East Timor, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Lebanon, Sudan, Nigeria, Ethiopia. He says, wherever, wherever one looks along the perimeter of Islam, Muslims have problems living peaceably with their neighbors. So he, he, yeah. really, he doesn't hold back on that either. He's like, you know, the West needs to be more humble and, you know, and less uh, expansive in these, you know, these grand visions of bringing a democracy to the world and Western values. Well, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact that that's probably not going to work. But, at the, uh, but he is also going to say like, but there is, you know, one of, one of these groups is more difficult and challenging than the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, shoot, I can't find this in my notes, but he, but he says the same thing about Ch Muslims bumping up against the Chinese. And we just talked about the Uyghurs and obviously the way that China has dealt with them is to throw them in concentration camps. But, um. I liked this. Changes in the demographic balance, expansion of one group generates political, economic, and social pressures on other groups and induces counter countervailing responses. I, I want to make a note about, put a pin in that for American politics, but I'll just say real quick, this, this is, you know, part of the problem. Like, so he says Muslim populations grew in Yugoslavia, which aroused Serbian nationalism, you know, mm -hmm. and, and what we've seen is Muslim societies are, they're having more kids and, and, uh, you know, they're spilling over and obviously that makes more immigration. Now in the long term, that started to slow down. Yeah. And uh, he, he says basically, you know, like Africans coming to Europe or there's probably going to be the next big challenge, you know, more than Muslims. Even, but. but even that's slowing down too. Yeah, it, it, it levels out. But yeah, it's a challenge for sure. So anyway, he, you know, so again, he, he doesn't mince words. But I, I don't want to go back to my pin, which I, I, I really thought that this was deeply explanatory not just for international relations but here in america again i'm going to read it again changes in the demographic balance that is expansion of one group generates political economic and social pressures on other groups and induces countervailing responses i mean mm -hmm. there's an argument to be made that that's exactly what trump you know represents is 30 years ago the share of the white vote was you know 80 something percent these days it's you know 60 percent and, and obviously it's a number that's continually going down and I can just speak from experience for, you know, listening to my own, you know, family and friends, you know, back home and people who are older than us saying like, it's just dizzying how much has changed in such, such a short time. And, uh, and really that's, it's a, it's a function of changes in the demographic changes in America. You know, I mean, I remember. So I'm from uh, Utah, Salt Lake, and it's just, I, I remember going to Vegas and there wasn't anyone but white people there. And now it's like almost the, the, the state is 
more than a third Hispanic now, I think. It's just, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, those are major changes in a very short amount of time. And uh, obviously, like, you know, people have to adjust to that. And what he's saying is, this is one of the main causes of fault line wars. Now, that isn't to say that we're going to have a war in, in America, but like, that's what they're facing in Europe too, is, you know, immigration and then, and then uh, the expansion of dem- you know, demographic change or whatever. And it's dizzying and destabilizing and it really knocks the 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 culture off kilter because you know is it does it change is it a new culture you know are you anyway so uh i mean i think this is has great application to to what we're dealing with here in america too it does yeah and i think people who are uh here using that demographics as destiny argument as to why the democrats were going to win forever we're only seeing half of that equation saying look well we're getting more of the kind of people who tend to vote our way so we're gonna win we're gonna win forever mm-hmm. republicans are finished and they didn't anticipate what he's talking about here is that that, that itself will cause a reaction yeah yeah and as you shift the party you're gonna lose people and then i also i also think there's that we assimilate people better in america than they do in europe so it it will have different effects than Europe where you've got this sort of lump of people that it will is forever different than the other people in those European countries. And like you were saying that Europeans don't even want the Muslims to assimilate. They, they see they're separate. The Muslims think they're separate. Everybody is like, yes, we're all set. We are separate in America. Yeah. I think even a big lump of immigration eventually gets swallowed and becomes part of the whole, but Time's going to tell on that, but in the meantime, there are yeah. these these effects that are very similar to the civilizational effects. I think it's talking about. I, I agree with you on that one. All right, closing thoughts. Well, I I think we didn't get into a lot of the specifics of what he talked about, but he talked about some fault lines here that twenty years, twenty five years later, are extremely true. I mean, he talked about Ukraine being on the fault line between the Orthodox and the West. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, look at it now. Part of it's, and we talked about Crimea specifically, but also Eastern Ukraine occupied by Russian quasi-military forces to this day. It, you know, that sort of thing. The fault line, but you know, the stuff going on with the Uyghurs in Western China, that's the fault line he gets at. And, and it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And just the general idea of West versus non-West in as a civilizational fault line. And, you know, in the years since then, we've had two major wars, which are still kind of going on against Muslim countries. And, you know, we don't talk as though it's a war between America and Islam, which it's, and it's not, and we don't want it to be, but, you know, the civilization that we're occupying in Iraq or or, we don't occupy as much as we used to, but, you know, the ones we did occupy and did try to rebuild, in Iraq and Afghanistan are a different civilization than, than, than we are. And mm-hmm. Huntington saw that coming and saw that as the, the uh, organizing factor of the world. And I, I think he got a lot right. Yeah. I think he got a lot right too. And from, from 96, when he wrote it until, you know, the, maybe the last five or six years, he, like you said, he was kind of viewed as like, well, this is kind of a, a racist book and it's wrong. And now all of a sudden people are like, hmm, actually, he was pretty darn right. <laughs> uh, but so in my final note, I just want to say he he has a, a final chapter 12 on the decline of civilizations, which I thought was really good. And 
we just didn't have a time, enough time to get to it. But he says civilizations are always convinced that theirs is the final form of human society. This is kind of what we've talked about before, the arrogance of like, we are the, you know, the very best. And, you know, even the philosopher Hegel said he uh, laid out the philosophy of history or whatever the his, you know, history is an unfolding. And basically Germany, when he was alive, that was the final form. And, mm-hmm. you know, here in, in American Western civilization, we say, well, here, this is, this is the final form. But he says, no, you know, like you got to, rec- we all need to recognize that, that uh, civilizations do decay. People live off their capital and the civilization moves from the stage of universal state to the stage of decay. Decay then leads to the stage of invasion when the civilization is no longer able or willing to defend itself, becomes vulnerable to younger, more powerful civilization. Central issue for the West is whether it can stop and reverse the process of decay. Now, I don't, I don't know that there's going to be all these, you know, young soldiers coming from another civilization to, you know, destroy America. But he, he spends a, a good amount of time, like just talking about how how decay happens, where this the society really loses its edge. Yeah. You know, and in America, it made me think to myself, like, it loses its innovation, innovative edge, you know, loses its edge when it comes to like trying to make improvements and recognizing reality rather than just sort of like, Hey, we're so rich now. Let's just give it all away and see if it doesn't tank us, you know, or whatever. And so, uh, it's conservative in that way too. There's a lot of stuff in this book and, uh, even stuff that we didn't get to. He, he spends, frankly, most of the pages, are dedicated to specific examples that, uh, you know, in, in, in Europe, you know, in, in the Southeast Asia or whatever, all, all kinds of really good, um, meaty examples of these, uh, you know, inter-civilizational, um, interactions. We didn't really get into it here just because it would have been tedious, but if you're into that, like, you know, it's, this is a international relations book for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.